which case the page number is printed there in your bulletin in parentheses. Hebrews chapter 9, this is God's word. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the table tablets of the covenant. Above it, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is God's Word. Let's pray that He would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, Help us to understand what you would have us know from these things. What we would learn from these old covenant rituals. What we should cling to in our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be our teacher, Lord, that we might not be misled. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My very, very first science fair project that I remember doing like sort of on my own, where my parents didn't do it for me, um, I worked with a neighbor to construct a, a machine that would use electromagnetism to turn on a light bulb. And it required a big, heavy magnet, and we put it on this crank that you could turn, and it would spin around these... Uh, loops of wire uh, around iron cores. It's very, very complicated for a seventh grader. And I mean, I, we must have wrapped wire for days. I think we, if we had unwound it, we could wrap through the earth 
few times. At least that's how it felt. And after wrapping this and putting it all together and this kindly old neighborhood man letting me use his, his shop, <laughs> I wonder, very uh, conscious oversight so I didn't cut my fingers off on his table saw, it was finished. And it didn't work. And it didn't matter. We, we tried this, we adjusted that, and it just never, the light bulb never came on. And so I took my science fair project in the next day, because that's, you know, that's how you do these things, you know, to say, well, it should work, but it doesn't. Something's broken. There was something in one of those loops of wire where the connectivity was broken, the continuity was broken. I don't know. We couldn't figure it out. It just didn't work. And it felt like all of that effort to build that thing was just a big, fat waste of time. I learned nothing except not to build a machine for a science fair project. And when we read some of these things in the Old Testament, all of this work that they have to go into, all of these regulations, all of these washings, all of these rituals, all of these these things that they, they had to do to feel close to the Lord, all of these good works that they had to perform in order to, to enter into his presence. And we read in the, the New Testament that none of this works. It makes me wonder, maybe it makes you wonder, is all of this just a big waste of time? Were any of these rituals, were any of these sacrifices any good at all? Was God just occupying us? And what about now? Is it worth doing good things? Is it worth obeying? Is it worth following the commandments? If we find that there's actually something broken in us. And it doesn't matter how hard we turn the crank. It doesn't matter how hard we strive. We're never going to be able to be true light and a life to the world. Is it all just a big waste of time? Hebrews has been making the case that the old covenant is of immense value because it teaches us something. It teaches us something about our God, and it teaches us something about ourselves. You see this in verse 8, where it says that by this, by, by all of this stuff that the priests were having to do, the Holy Spirit indicates something to us. All along, God was teaching us. Teaching us what? We've said this before. This hopefully isn't new. But the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, taught us and still teaches us that all of our efforts, all of our works are dead. That there's no law, no commandment, no ritual, no observance, no doctrine that can overcome the fact that we are fundamentally broken at the core of who we are, alienated from God and one another. And that there is nothing that we can conjure, nothing that we can manufacture, nothing that we can do, nothing that we can think, nothing that we can feel that will, in our own strength or power, open up 
access to God that we might have fellowship with him. That's a depressing lesson to teach, but it's critical that we learn it. But the New Covenant teaches that there is a cure for our dead works. That there is a way into the holy places, though not by our own hands. The cure for our dead works begins and ends with Christ. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to consider the curse of dead works and and how it subtly creeps into our everyday lives. And we're going to consider the cure for dead works and how we need to take hold of that afresh and anew and consider then what it means for us and our lives before the Lord. So the first thing I want us to do is to consider the curse of dead works. The first seven verses of this chapter are are laying out the, 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 the reality that the old covenant had regulations for worship and for holiness. This is what holiness is. This is what worship looks like. This is what you should do. This is how you should do it. And implicit in those regulations was this principle that God was calling Israel, the priesthood in particular, the high priest most of all, to engage in a a holy service to God in order for the people to gain access to God. Nobody was allowed to be in the tent of meeting. Nobody was allowed. You gathered around the tabernacle, this, this tabernacle that was set in the middle of Israel, around which all the tribes made their place and set up their camps, On the Day of Atonement, no one was allowed in except the high priest. But here's the thing. When the high priest went into the most holy place, to the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, this place where where heaven and earth met, where God's presence was said to dwell, and not in idols like the pagans, but, but on the Ark of the Covenant, which was his throne, over which the cherubim bowed, and above them was nothing. Because there is no image that can encompass that most holy and righteous God. When the high priest went into those places, he had to take blood. For the sins of the people and for his own sins. Every year, again and again and again, by which the Holy Spirit indicated that that access to God wasn't fully, truly opened as long as the tabernacle stood. Because our service to God isn't holy. No matter how hard we try, if we are to walk into his presence, we are going to have to take blood for our own sins and for the sins of the people. There was no high priest yet to arise, that could, on his own merit, walk into the presence of God and serve him in righteousness and holiness and truth. When uh, we had graduated college, you know, all, of, all of our little friend groups sort of scattered, took our jobs, got married, did these things, and 
just woke up one day and realized we need to get back together like the old days. And so we rented this cabin in the mountains of North Carolina outside of Asheville to get together to play board games and to go hiking and to do all the fun stuff. And we got there and it was great until we realized that it was so cold that all the pipes were frozen in this rental house. There was this jacuzzi. Tough luck. <laughs> there was like the, the, these nice, completely remodeled bathrooms. The kitchen was amazing. It, I mean, this was no rustic camp cabin that we were in. This was like a nice place. And all of these gorgeous fixtures, all of these wonderful appliances were just a constant reminder that there was no water. There, there was no facility to be used. And we tried to tough it out. We thought, we, we can do this. We can go out to eat and wash our hands. We can, and, and we, no, we just had to cut the trip short, get our refund, and go home. So the old covenant was teaching the people of God that they didn't have the water in their pipes to make all of that ritual accomplish anything. They didn't have the substance. They didn't have the power. They didn't have the holiness. They didn't have what was required in themselves to enter into God's presence. And so that access was blocked. I'm allergic to fire ants. And fortunately, in this part of Virginia, there are none until they figure out how to cross the James River. Hopefully that's a long time after I'm gone. But in South Carolina, there are a lot of fire ants. And if you want my advice, don't walk around barefoot a lot in South Carolina. I found myself standing on a sidewalk in my own driveway, apparently under which was a, a whole bed of fire ants. And they got me. And I freaked out. I mean, I was just blowing up like a balloon. I'm running up and down, which is also don't. If you're having an allergic reaction, don't start running everywhere. That's, that's not a good thing. I calmed down for a second. I put my feet in ice. And I thought to myself, I should call this neighbor who's a nurse. And she came over, took one look at me and said, get in the car. And I said, well, let me go put some socks and shoes on. And I know I've told you this story before, but I'm telling it again. And you know, like just fire eyes, get in the car. And I jump in the car and she speeds out of the driveway. My, my parents were gone. That's why I had to call somebody else. And she sees my mom on a walk with a neighbor. Get in the car. Mom didn't ask why. She just gets in the car. A police car was following us like the whole way. She's running red lights and stop signs just. And as we walk into the emergency room lobby, I black out. Turns out I had a blood pressure of about 60 over 40, which doesn't really mean anything to me. But if you're trying to lower your blood pressure, that's too much. I've wondered what would have happened if just one little thing had delayed us by 30 seconds? What if I hadn't put my feet in ice and slowed down the spread of the venom? What if I hadn't called this nurse? What if I like fought her and said, no, I'm putting, I'm getting out of my pajamas and putting on my socks and shoes. What if my mom had been like, what's going on? And demanded an explanation. What if the police car tried to pull us over? What if, there was a wreck on the way. What if, what if, what if? Just one little thing would have blocked access to the place I needed to be most of all. How much more does the weight of our sin and wickedness and selfishness and unrighteousness block 
our access to the living God. And there are no set of works that you can do to overcome it. Our works are dead. And yet, we are tempted constantly to rely on dead works to help us feel better about our relationship with God. Some of you have been listening very closely since we've been in chapter 7. And you're starting to wonder, like, when are we going to find out what we should do? Hebrews is this strange book. Like, there, there is precious little application in Hebrews. A pastor friend of mine was, was talking to me about one of the passages. He's like, that's a hard book to preach. Can't tell anybody what to do. It keeps driving home this point. All of this stuff, all of these works, what do they really amount to? What do they really accomplish? We have a tendency to, to focus on the outward behavior. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school where parents are, we are notorious about this. Like we know our kids need Jesus and all that, but like you're going to sit still and pay attention. Like, like if you just sit still and pretend like you're listening, that's, that, we're good with that. And we forget about the heart. We're content with that outward conformity. Or, or we find ourselves trying to cope with our own guilt, our own unrighteousness by doing religious things. Oh no, I just said something really nasty to, to my spouse or to my children or to my neighbor or to my coworker. And we, we, we look the Bible, some Bible verses up on our phone to maybe feel better if we're reading the scriptures that, about the things that we've done and said. Or we do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And what we're really doing when we start to move away from what the old covenant is trying to teach us and from what the new covenant is inviting us to draw near to, what we end up doing when we start subtly depending on ourselves and our sense of righteousness and how we feel and how we live and how we behave and what we do, what we're really doing is avoiding drawing near to the living God. Because none of us can draw near to the living God, behold his majesty and glory and holiness and righteousness and say, but look at all this stuff I've done for you. It will seem so trite. This is why in that passage in Leviticus that we read, it says the high priest has to go in carrying blood. Did you, did you remember the reason? So that he does not die. Think about all the times in Scripture when sinful men encountered the living God and they fall on their face. Isaiah sees just a vision of the living God and he's like, Woe is me. The Apostle John 
who spent time with Jesus, sees the resurrected Lord in his glory and falls on his face in fear. Which one of us is going to stand in the presence of the Almighty God with a list of all the things that we've done for him and think that that will hold water? And what Hebrews is trying to do is trying to open our eyes to the constant way we live our lives that way. Suddenly thinking that if we just go through the motions of the Christian faith, if we just do the things that Christians are supposed to do, that that will be enough. And it won't do anything but bring a curse. And so the new covenant shows us the cure for dead works. Because it shows us a priest who does not offer the blood of bulls and goats. It shows us a high priest who enters in not to a shadow of the holy place, not into a tent made by human hands, but into the true holy place where God himself dwells. The Lord Jesus Christ, who we read in verses 11 and 12, has secured by his own blood an eternal redemption one that does not have to be repeated every year, but once for all has brought salvation to his people. And so what the new covenant does is it shows us that the old covenant in inviting the people of God to engage in holy service in order to gain access to God, that that's a fool's errand. That there is no amount of holy service that we can do that will merit access to God. And so the new covenant comes in and says, but what God has done is he's granted access to his presence to sinful people in order that they might be freed to serve him. You see the difference? This is why it's significance in verse 11 that Christ, when he appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, the the true temple, which was his body, he entered once for all into the holy place. We read in Matthew 27 that when he offered his life up on the cross, when he shed his blood, when he gave up his spirit and died, bearing the sins of his people, the veil on the temple The curtain that separated the people from the most holy places was rent asunder from top to bottom in two. Showing that access to God because of Christ's sacrifice was open. A separation no longer exists. A barrier no longer stands. We were granted access to him. And and in truth, even those Old Testament saints The access that they had to God wasn't on the basis of the blood of bulls and goats. It wasn't on the basis of the ritual. It was on the basis of the coming sacrifice of Christ. And as they served God in faith, trusting his provision, that salvation of God so great transcends time and space and gave them even that access. To what end? That we might be freed To serve him. These may be some of the most powerful verses, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons 
with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. In other words, if all of these sacrificial rituals provided some earthly purification, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In the New Covenant, we are invited to think of the entirety of our lives as one lived in devotion and thanksgiving and a love and thankfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ. Serving Him not in order to gain access to Him. Serving Him not so that we might draw near, but drawing near to Him and finding that we're set free to serve God. Some of you have gardens. My parents grew up gardening, which means I grew up gardening, and it's dreadful. Go out, and and, and, because my parents did not have a tiny little garden. It was like five acres. I'm exaggerating. But it felt to a six-year-old like five acres. We had an acre lot, and at least half of it was garden. Tilling it, weeding it, planting it. And I hated every minute of it. And I swore to whoever would listen that I would never again have a garden until I started remembering how good those homegrown tomatoes really are and how wonderful a fresh strawberry picked right off the vine is until I started remembering all of the good bounty. And so there was a time in South Carolina where I decided I'm going to have a garden and I built a garden and it was wonderful. Even like it was a hobby. And some of you, like I can't have a garden right now because the deer just eat everything, but some of you have figured out a way. You've got booby traps and missile in bank, placements and all kinds of things to keep all these wild animals out and you garden and and it's wonderful and it's this joyful hobby and you share the bounty here's the thing there was a time in human history where you kind of had to know how to garden to survive i don't know anybody that has a garden right now that has to have a garden like we have a garden because we want to have a garden because it's fun because it's a hobby because we, like we don't need any of that stuff. Run down to the Harris Teeter, go to the farmers market, and pick up a fresh cucumber that somebody else worked. I don't have to worry about it. But we yet still find ways to have these gardens to enjoy the fruit, and it's this hard, difficult, wonderful, beautiful hobby that we're free to do if we want. If you can figure out how to deal with the deer. The cure for dead works, it begins and it ends with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has purchased for us an eternal redemption. His works were without blemish before God. He is able to purify us. He grants us access into the presence of God and then sets us free to live for Him in thanksgiving and gratitude joy. How do you need to be set free to serve the living God? 
Some of us think that the gospel is proclaimed so that we can get forgiveness and then receive instruction for how we should live. As if all that Jesus did was wipe the slate clean, but now it's up to us. And this totally undermines that way of thinking. And here's some of the ways we do this. Oh, pastor, my friend, my wife, my husband, my children, my neighbor, this person did this horrible thing to me. But then they asked forgiveness. But it hurts. What am I supposed to do? Well, I mean, I've probably said this before. Maybe you've heard this before. Well, you should forgive them. Because that's what Christians do. And I guess that's true, sort of, maybe, but that's not what Scripture offers as counsel. It says, forgive one another as you yourselves have been forgiven in Christ. Do you see the difference? One is subtly letting the principle of dead works enter in. This is what I have to do because this is what I'm supposed to do because of what God has told me to do. And the other says, as I have drawn near to my Savior and God and King, my great high priest, as who he is and what he has done for me has seeped in to this hard, sinful heart as I have experienced the forgiveness that he has offered me. How can I not overflow with forgiveness to others. And this is the application of the book of Hebrews. Again and again and again and again, it points back to the old things, the shadows, the the examples, the types, the symbols of things in the old covenant that only pointed us to the reality in Christ. And if you want the reality of the Christian life to break through into your hard heart, if you want the reality of love and forgiveness and mercy to take practical shape in your life, if you want the reality, you cannot manufacture it through types and shadows. You have to draw near to the real thing. You have to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am afraid that some of us don't know how to do that so we rely on being good how do you know how to draw near to Jesus I'm a pastor and I struggle with this do we know how to read scripture in a way that draws us near to the Lord, to see the glory of our God in his word that he has given us? Do we know how to pray? To draw near to him and lay every prayer and petition at his feet? Do we know how to seek from him that peace which passes all understanding? Or do we occupy ourselves with little fiddly habits to distract ourselves from the hard, hard world in which we live. Do we know how to draw near to Jesus? Because if you don't, all the good works, all of the ritual, 
all of the habits will do nothing to help you. A little child understands the concept of this gospel service better than most, I think. All right. Mom fills the high chair tray with Cheerios or whatever it is that we feed kids these days. And that little blob of joy is content to just stuff her face. As many of those Cheerios, you know, no, you know, half of parenting is like, don't know, you cannot put that many in your mouth. There comes a point, right? There comes a point when that child, young, early on, begins to see a little bit more of the world around and they see mom and dad fill their tray with these Cheerios and there's this point, you've seen it, you know it, if you've ever had a child, or they're stuffing their face and they look up and they, they offer a Cheerio back. You know what I'm talking about? Like this nasty, slobber-covered Greasy little soggy Cheerio that we don't want. We don't. Nobody eats Cheerios without a lot of sugar. And you shouldn't do that. But they offer it back. And you take it with joy and delight. Oh, thank you. Not because it's added anything to you. Because you love your child and you're seeing in them that love reflected. How much more does our Heavenly Father Himself open the way for us to draw near to Him that we might be set free not from this arduous, anxiety-filled treadmill of am I good enough? Do I feel bad enough? Am I working hard enough? Let's set free to delight in his love and respond to his love, overflowing with lives that reflect the love of Christ to all who have eyes to see. This is the message of Hebrews. This is the gospel. We got to look to someone else. We've got to look to the Lord Jesus Christ for the cure for dead works begins and ends in him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see this truth and reality. It's hard and the lies of the devil seep in so easily. Did God really say, doesn't this look good? Won't this help you? And we discover that even the devil can recite Scripture. Give us eyes to see what you would have us know, what is true, what is untwisted and unperverted by the lies of the devil, the good news of the gospel, or that it might change us that it might change the way we parent, that it might change the way we treat our spouses, that it might change the way we live in community with one another, not in order to impress you, because we have drawn near to our living God. And we did, we did not remain the same. Teach us what that means, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand and join our voices together.